Thank you, Joe, and the worship team. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to me to Genesis chapter 37. This morning, this is the first of what will be a four-week series. We're on God's providence, of course, uh, is the series. But uh, as part of that, the next four weeks, we'll be looking at the story of Joseph, one of the great, great stories of God's providence in all the Bible. We're going to see a lot of the things we talked about in the introductory sermon, which now seems like a long time ago, to me anyway, uh, we'll see those lived out in this story. It's an amazing story, and if you have siblings today, you'll really appreciate much about this. You may be infuriated by much of today's chapter. So today we'll look at chapter 37. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Uh, the next four weeks, next week we'll be looking at verse, uh, chapters 39 to 41. We won't read all those chapters uh, during this time, so read ahead. I encourage you to kind of study and read ahead, 39 to 41. Next week I'll give you the, the, the uh, next chunk. And uh, read that and come prepared. Read it maybe on Sunday morning, Saturday night, and come prepared uh, so that we don't have to read all of it. And you get the gist of the story, but a great story. Genesis chapter 37, the story of Joseph. Let us hear now the word of God as inspired by his Holy Spirit. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, you got teenagers, you're really going to appreciate this. Being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the, with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. <clears throat> now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come bow ourselves on the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to Joseph, Go now. See if, if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So we sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And he found him wandering, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. 
And the man said, They have gone away, for I have heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They're going to kill their brother. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of his hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, so that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And he took them and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on the way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. He identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. This his father wept, thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And this is the word of the Lord. When grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, this morning I pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see great things from your word. I pray, Lord, that in this story we would be comforted and strengthened as we see your hand of providence, the invisible hand of God that controls everything. And we would be comforted and strengthened. We would look, as we see the culture around us with all the shaking going on, that, Lord, we would look and see that you are not shaken. Your kingdom is not shaken. Your hand is not shaken. It is upon us and that you are working out your good pleasure on our lives for your glory. And we would be strengthened and encouraged and leave here today with a greater level of joy in your confidence, rejoicing that God is king and that we are his children. We've been adopted through Christ into his family. And Lord, not one hair of our head will fall to the ground apart from you. So God, strengthen us now to know your word and live in accord with it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I just keep saying it. I'm going to keep saying it because I think repetition is a good thing because we don't always all listen. Even I don't always listen. Little things mean a lot. And you know in this series I've been saying that life is a game of inches, but God ordains the inches. We're going to see that in this story, that little things mean a lot. And I think... That is seen in what is called the butterfly effect. Who's ever heard of the butterfly effect? Also known as chaos theory. The butterfly effect says this, that a tiny imperceptible action on one side of the world, such as, that's why it's called the butterfly effect, a butterfly flapping its wings sets in motion changes in the atmosphere such that an enormous effect is produced on the other side of the world, like a hurricane. So a butterfly flaps its wings in Africa and a hurricane breaks out in the Pacific Ocean because of the ripple effects, the chain of events that take place from the butterfly flapping its wings. Little things mean a lot. But is it true? Is the butterfly effect, the chaos theory, is it true? Well, I think it is. Now, I don't know. You're not, don't leave here and say, well, our pastor said today that butterflies' wings, or that's what causes hurricanes. Some child's going to say that at school. They're going to say, your pastor's a nut. And you'd be right about that probably, but I'm not a meteorologist, but little things mean a lot. That's the point. I think history bears this out. Look no further than the infamous sinking of the Titanic, April 1912. A man named David Blair, probably from Blairsville, Georgia. David Blair. Scheduled to be the second officer on the maiden voyage of the Titanic. At the last minute, the White Star Line, which owned the Titanic, decided to use a more experienced officer, a man named Charles Lightholer, to use him in David Blair's place as a second officer. And so, but in his haste to turn over the job to his replacement, Mr. Blair forgot to give Mr. Lightholer, the new second officer, the key to the crow's nest locker. The locker containing the binoculars used to search for icebergs and other dangers in the path of the ship. Binoculars. Forgot to give him the key to the locker containing the binoculars. Without the binoculars, the crew had to search the nighttime sea through the fog and, the, uh, and the, all the, the tumult of the waves and everything. Search it with a naked eye. And look for icebergs with the naked eye. And so they did not see the black iceberg until it was too late and the Titanic struck it. The black iceberg that put the Titanic at the bottom of the sea. You know the rest of the story, don't you? You've probably seen the movie. 1,500 people died. All because shift manager forgot to give the key to the locker that contained the binoculars. And they couldn't see the iceberg, butterfly effect. History bears this out. There's, I could stand here, I'm a historian, I could tell you hundreds of stories that, that, that bear this out. And we think of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They were both bombed. The atomic bombs were dropped during World War II on those two cities because the weather over Tokyo kept them from being able to see to drop the bombs on Tokyo. And so because of cloud cover, Tokyo was spared and Hiroshima and Nagasaki and another city was spared. And those two were destroyed because of the weather. So you see these small things have massive effects. I think God's providence bears this out, and it will ring clear in the story of Joseph. 
think Joseph's story fascinates me, just like this doctrine fascinates me, and I hope it does you. But it's perhaps the chief example in all the Bible of the benevolent providence of God, as spelled out in Romans 8.28, which is kind of the backdrop. We're going to finish there here in a few months, a few weeks, which says God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. In other words, God is working out all these little details for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And in that we can rest, right? We're going to see that in this, in this story. Little things mean a lot. God uses small, seemingly insignificant events and people as links in the chain of circumstances to accomplish his purposes. We'll see God do this to get Joseph into Egypt, where he's a jailbird, but then he becomes prime minister of Egypt and eventually saves millions of lives of God's people when a seven-year famine hits and Joseph is able, Joseph in a political position to be able to provide food for the people. Of course, Joseph saves the Israelites from whom, of course, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will eventually come. But it couldn't have happened without the story of Joseph. See how the Bible's linked together? And of course, we're going to see at the end of today's sermon and every sermon, we'll see Christ in all of this. And the links from all these events to the cross of Jesus Christ, which has saved you and saved me. See, the, really, the Bible's just about one thing, isn't it? One thing only, it's about Christ. In him alone. When we see small things happen in our lives, we seldom realize how important they are. That's part of the lesson I want us to learn here throughout this story. We see small things happen, never realizing the effect it's going to have on us, the impact. Insignificant events. But really and truly, there are no insignificant events in God's economy, are there? Not in our lives, not in history, nothing. It's because it's God's world and God is, God is ordaining, has ordained history and is playing it out every day according to his purposes and his plan and his will. And that should comfort us. No matter how much chaos is in the world as there is right now. As Joe alluded to earlier. We don't have to be, we don't have to be struck down by that, do we? We don't have to be discouraged by that because we know this. We know what we learn from the story of Joseph. Now, the story of Joseph plays out in over about 93 years' time. These chapters are going to be a 12, a dozen or so chapters over 93 years of time. Of course, they're compressed from the time Joseph is 17 years old until his death at about 110 years old. In the story of Joseph, we will see a vital part of the doctrine of God's providence. The Bible's teaching what theologians call concurrence. Remember that? We looked at that the first week, concurrence. It's a big word, but what does that mean? Well, concurrence simply refers to the way in which God's actions and human actions work together. In other words, God uses means to accomplish his ends. He uses what theologians and philosophers call secondary causes, often that's us, to achieve his purposes. God works in the world. God is the primary mover, the primary agent, the primary cause. But he uses secondary causes to accomplish his purposes, to to play out his, his script that he's written. Currents. Secondary causes. But God is always the primary cause. God's sovereign providence stands over and above all of our actions. And yet we act. I've heard people say, well, this, this makes us robots, it seems to me. But let me ask you this. Do you feel like a robot? If you tune me out in a few minutes, will you say, I didn't feel like a robot, I did that on my own, right? <laughs> and you're saying God ordained my tuning you out. Don't tune me out. 
But if you do, well, that's part of God's plan. Mysteriously so. Maybe it's God's judgment on your life. I don't know. <laughs> it's God blinding you to the truth. I don't know. God works. God's always at work, right? No accidents. And I've actually seen people mock this doctrine. Stand up and say, did God ordain this? I had a guy in my class at Sunday once. I said, yes. Did you ordain this? And he danced. And he's quite a good dancer. I can't do that. You'll see. Uh, I can't dance. But he uh, said, yeah, God, absolutely. He's ordaining your silliness right now. But it should, it, it should not be a matter of controversy. But it should bring so much, a world of comfort. I mean, I want you to have joy, as much joy in this doctrine as I do when we're done, you know, 14 or 15 weeks from now. I want you to have joy and confidence, and I want you to sleep better at night. And I don't want you to worry about politics or the, who the president is or who he ain't or whatever as much as you did when we went into this series. Because I know you and I know me. Concurrence. God is at work, though, through all these things, through you often. And we're also going to witness a powerful answer to the question in the story of Joseph, the question of how does God use sin and sinful motives to accomplish his purposes? Because either... God is sovereign, or he's not sovereign. And if he's not sovereign, he's not God. And yes, that includes sin. That includes sinful motives. We're going to see that, how God uses this. Gloriously so. Even, and you know this in your own lives, probably how God, in spite of your sin, or even, <clears throat> even use some of the things you've done in your life to bring about great glory and great changes in your life. He's always at work. In 10 million ways around us, we can't see. We want to see that played out very clearly in the story of Joseph, how God uses sin to accomplish his purposes. Well, let's look at the story. Joseph. Who is Joseph? Well, I would summarize him this way. He's daddy's favorite son. He's daddy's boy. He's his favorite son. Isn't that audacious you to start writing this? Joseph, uh, uh, Jacob loved Joseph more than his brothers. It just says it. It doesn't apologize for it. It just says it. There you have it. And all you siblings think, yeah, I know, my parents, I know, they got a favorite son. Every one of you just thought that, yeah, I don't, I have, a, have no problem believing that. I know where my parents are. I know my children are sitting over there probably looking at each other going, it's just here, you know. I used to tell them, I hope each one of you think you're my favorite son or daughter. I don't know what they think. I'm sure they'll tell me later. But he's daddy's favorite son. We begin with the generations of Jacob. We just come out of, of these verses in verses 1 and 2, transition from Esau's family Looking at Esau's family in chapter 36 to Jacob's family is indicated here by verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. This is also called Toledoth, the Toledoth formula in Hebrews, uh, and that the word of Hebrew for the generations. And the reason I'm bringing this, I, I, I point this out is because this is a literary device that's very important in Genesis. It really provides the spine of Genesis. It's the skeleton. These are the generations of Abraham. These are the generations of Noah, of Abraham. These are the generations of Isaac. And when you see that, you see this is the story of that patriarch and his family and God building a people that leads to where we are right now as the church, and the, the church is his people to us. So the, these are the generations. Very, very important. The Toledoth formula. If you want to know a good, a good Hebrew word there, it is a good word. But it signifies the story to come is the story of Jacob and his family. And so here is Jacob's family. The, the patriarchs of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel will be born through Jacob. But Joseph is going to play a starring role in this story. Daddy's boy, the favorite son, the starring role. And well, he should. And I'm going to argue that he should. 
And it is God's goodness and this is God's plan. Because right now, I bet you don't like Joseph very much. You're thinking, oh boy, this Joseph guy's got some real, he's real cheeky. It takes real courage just to say your brother's going to bow down to you. Tell your family, they're going to worship me someday. Boy, that takes, that takes some real courage. 17 years old, pastoring the flock, shepherding the sheep of his brothers. And what does he do? He brings, and I love this translation. This is, this is literal, literal Hebrew translation. He brings a bad report of his brothers to daddy. <laughs> How many of you siblings have ever brought a bad report of your brothers and sisters to daddy or mommy right here? I'm going to tell on brother or sister. You can't wait. You gleefully tell on them, right? They're doing this. Of course, that never happens in my household, you know. He brings a bad, I just love the language, a bad report. That's a literal from the, from the Hebrew, a bad report. It's not a good report. What is it? Well, we don't know. But I think it's designed, this report's designed to make Joseph look really good in the eyes of daddy and to make his siblings look really bad in the eyes of daddy. I think that's it. You aren't bad reports usually designed for that when, when, when siblings tell on their other siblings. And of course... I think the, the drift issue that Joseph's behavior is more righteous than his brother's. And it's hard for us to, we, kinda, we don't like that, do we think? Joseph's a tattletale and his, he's more righteous than his brother's? Bad report. This is going to begin to alienate Joseph from his brother's, of course. I mean, none of us likes a tattletale, do we? I remember very vividly in first grade. A girl named Amy York. And I remember Amy because her father was a social studies teacher at my elementary school. And the teachers loved her, and she loved to tell on the rest of us, especially me. I got in trouble. Hard for you to believe I got in trouble for talking a lot. But the teacher would go out and say, if anybody talks, you can get a paddling. You did that back then, you know. And so we would all talk. And Amy would tell, have a list of everybody who talked. And, of course, Jeff Robinson would no doubt be at the top. And so I was usually in the hall because of Amy York. And Amy, if you're listening, I'm sure you're wonderful now and you've grown out of that, but you're a tattletale. And I did not like that. And no one liked Amy York as a result. I think she actually moved eventually. <laughs> Probably not because of that. But, but really, I digress. No one likes a tattletale. So this begins to alienate him and it's going to get worse. This gets worse as we go. He's daddy's favorite son. He tells, brings a bad report. In verses, verses 3 and 4, now Israel, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his sons. He loves the tattletale. More than any of his sons. How audacious. Audacious this is, isn't it? It's plainly worded. Joseph was Jacob's favorite and receives his beautiful, hand-sewn, multicolored garment from his father as a sign of his preferential treatment. Beautiful coat. Boy, don't you know they hated that coat. <laughs> and they're going to take pleasure in tearing that thing to shreds. Here's your coat, son. You know, it's like an Izod or something, you know, whatever your favorite. Some name brands, really, really nice garment. He gave it to one, but not the other 11. The other 11 brothers, what did they get? Well, nothing. The robe was probably an ornate piece of clothing. It, there's kind of a royal... It's kind of got a royal status, I think. It marked that he was some kind of royalty. My son, I love him so much, I want to make him king. He's royal. Give, confer to him royal status. Boy, <clears throat> the brothers hated Joseph. And we see here, I think, favoritism. How deadly favoritism can become, right? Parents? Parents? <laughs> Do we have favorite children? I'm not going to say that. But I know, you know, this... 
this happens. And favoritism is deadly, isn't it? We see that here. I was accused by, of being my parents' favorite among the three sons. But see, I always thought my oldest brother. I could have sworn because we always thought he was going to be a pastor and I was going to be like the lead guitarist for Van Halen or something like that, you know, and he was going to be the pastor. And so I thought they loved him more than me. And they always said, well, that little brother of ours, boy, he's the favorite. They call me the golden child, I think was my nickname. <laughs> I really don't know why. I can't understand that. And I'm not sure my parents showed favoritism. But it's deadly, is it? Because it causes bitterness. We're going to see this bitterness. That's going to be a theme that's going to, we're going to tease out here just an application here in just a little while. Favoritism. By one gives birth to the sin of bitterness in another because they're not the favorite, right? You see that in the brothers. They're not the favorite. <laughs> they want to be. I mean, we all want to be the favorite, don't we? Now, this is why one of the things we learn in seminary is know your people's name because we love the sound of what? What do you love the sound of? Your own name. If your name is Larry and I call you Lester, you don't like that, right? Because, hey, I'm not Lester, I'm Larry, right? And I probably have called some of you Lester before. We love, the, we love our own names. We, we want to be the favorite, right? And I, want to, I wanted to be my parents' favorite. I'll just admit that right here in the pulpit. I'd be lying if I said anything different. Yeah, I want to be the favorite brother. There is no question about that. But it gives birth to sin and bitterness in these other brothers. And we're going to see that bitterness can be deadly. Again, we'll come back to that. But favoritism and bitterness are sins that drive the story, really. Drive it forward as the brothers seek how best to deal with daddy's boy. Lord Joseph, we're going to see how God works out his purposes even through favoritism and bitterness. God's going to use this in a very clear and profound way. So we move on. We get to verses 5 to 11. We encounter Joseph has a dream. I had a dream. And boy, what dreams they were. Basically, you're going to all worship me. If I stood here in the pulpit and said, you're going to worship me? I dreamed this last night. I'm going to scrap my sermon. What, what would you think? You'd remove me from the pulpit, probably. You'd, there'd be a race to see who could get me out of here the fastest, I think, right? But you, you're going to worship me. You're going to fall down before me. The first stream, verses 5 to 8. With the binding of sheaves, and a sheaf is a bundle of wheat stalks tied together. That's all that is. It's not a sheep. It's a sheaf. They're tied together in the field, and their sheaves do what? Joseph said, a dream last night. Your sheaf stood up and bowed down to mine. Now, we're not talking about wheat here. And they get this loud and clear. We're talking about worship. You're going to bow down before me. Not only my daddy's boy, not only to have the robe of many colors, you're going to worship me eventually. Builds, or he has a second dream. If that's, not, if that's not enough, if that's not, again, I'm using the word audacious enough that he shares that, maybe very highly impertinent that he shared that detail with his brothers, he has another dream. Verses 9 to 11. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars. How many brothers are there? Old baseball number. 11. 11. 11 brothers, right? They get this. And the sun and the moon and the stars, mommy and daddy, and all of you, I dreamed you bowed down to me. I dreamed you worshiped to me. And this is unconscionable, isn't it, to his brothers? But the ironic thing is it's going to happen. It's going to happen. In the end of the story, and I'm giving the punchline here, they're going to bow down before him. They're going to see it. 
They're going to do it. They think, we're going to kill him. We're going to get rid of this silly dreamer. But what's going to happen? They're going to bow down before him. And it's going to be God's will. And I'm going to argue that it's good, not that they worship him. That's idolatry, obviously. But what happens, what unfolds is God's good plan. His father, Jacob, what did he do? Well, he kept the saying. He said, what? We're going to worship you? But it says he kept the saying in mind. And I think, I'm not, we're not too, too sure. Bible scholars aren't too sure on what's going on with this. But it's possible that this statement anticipates Joseph's later decision to give Joseph his birthright as a double portion. <clears throat> the daddy's boys will give him the birthright and a double portion. Calvin believes that these dreams were given to Joseph by God, and I agree with him, to show, that Joseph, to show Joseph that God had chosen a great future for him and had declared it to him in these dreams. God gave him these dreams, said, Joseph, I have a great future. You're going to be a great leader among my people. So God gave him these dreams. Calvin said, God revealed in dreams what he would do. That afterwards it might be known that nothing happened fortuitously, in other words, by accident. But what had been fixed by a celestial decree was at length, in its proper time, carried forward through circuitous, circuitous windings to its completion. Now I want to circle circuitous windings. I love that. Boy, I love Calvin's writings. Think of going around and around and around. The circuitous windings. That's the little things. That's the butterfly's wings I'm talking about. God's going to God's going to carry this plan forward, his plan forward through these circuitous windings, through the, the flap of the butterfly's wings to get his will. I think that's exactly right. I agree with Calvin. I think this is God's ordaining, God choosing, God electing Joseph to save his people. And knowing all these things were happening by God's will would give Joseph confidence and faith even when things look bleak. And they're going to look really, really bleak for Joseph at many, many points through this story. We're going to encounter bleakness for Joseph. It looks like he has no future at all. On more than one occasion. But in the brothers, they caused jealousy, which ultimately led to bitterness. Now, what does the Bible say about bitterness? Hebrews 12, 15, the writer warned us about allowing a bitter root to grow up in us that, to cause trouble and defile many. It's going to, bitterness is going to cause trouble and defile many. And yet God's going to use it. The brothers of Joseph jealously led to bitterness and bitterness events leads to attempted murder. This makes me think of, of, of Saul and David. We studied in Sunday school here a while back. And really the first, the, the book of 1 Samuel is mainly an account of Saul seeking to kill David. Why? Because Saul is bitter toward David. Saul is a terrible king, the first king of Israel. He's an awful king, and God reveals to him, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you, David, uh, Saul, and give it to David. And you have this mantra, this song all the way through. First Samuel, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. They sing it, Israel's following David, and Saul is jealous, and on many occasions, he tries to kill David. And David spends a lot of his time in caves and other places running from Saul. Why? Jealousy and bitterness. And I know there's jealousy in our hearts because I'm a sinner like you. And there's jealousy. I mean, my temptation to be jealous of other churches, other ministries, other pastors, other writers, other, this. you know, you look at that and say, well, they've got a big church, they've got this. And, and there's jealousy. There's jealousy in ministry, believe me. Lots and lots of jealousy. 
and what foolishness, bitterness causes that comes from jealousy. Here it nearly leads Joseph's brothers to murder the very one through whom God will bring their salvation. They tried to kill their little S Savior. Of course, they don't know this yet, do they? This one they're trying to kill is going to be the one who rescues them from famine. And that's the irony, and that's where this bitterness leads. We move on. Verse 12. Joseph's brothers, paybacks, we're going to pay him back. And paybacks are, I'm going to say hard. <laughs> paybacks. He paid, we're going to pay him back for his dreams. The plot thickens. Jacob sends Joseph to Dothan. You ever been to Dothan? I've been to Dothan. I bought a dog in Dothan one time. Okay, that was Dothan, Alabama. This is not Dothan, Alabama. But Dothan, I always think of that every time I think of Dothan, every time I read about Dothan. But he sends Joseph to Dothan where his brothers are working the sheep and other pastures about 20 miles away. And so Joseph goes there, supposed to bring a report. Joseph doesn't have a great history of bringing, uh, bringing positive reports about his brothers back to his daddy. <laughs> and so no doubt they see him coming and they're thinking, oh boy, here he comes. Coming to bring a report. And I mean, the, I think the drift here is go and find out what they're doing. Are they doing their work? Are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? Come and tell me. Joseph has the best job. That's the job we want, right? Well, the brothers see him coming. Finally, he gets there through a circuitous route. He finally locates his brothers in Dothan, not Alabama, but the other Dothan. And they say, the brothers say, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. Let us kill our brother. Let us kill this silly dreamer and throw him into a pit and let him rot. What had, what had bitterness done? It had driven them to murder their brother. We're going to kill him. We're going to throw him in a pit. And he's going to rot. And we're going to tell a whopper of a lie to our daddy so that we don't get in trouble. So that we're not seen for the murderers that we are. But Reuben, the oldest brother, Shows a little bit of, uh, 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 at least a small amount of wisdom here. Attempts to rescue Joseph. And he argues against killing Joseph so he might restore him to their father. And of course it's possible that Reuben's motives here are mixed. It might have been that he loved his little brother and he wanted to rescue little bro from murder. It could have been he wanted to win back favor from his father. I think that's more likely. I'm going to take him. I'll take his favorite son back. I'll take him and his, that stupid coat. And I'll take it back to him. And I'll be a number one son. I'll tell all my brothers. <laughs> I'll get that in a lot of trouble. And I'm going to be the top son. And I'll receive the inheritance. Because it was supposed to go in ancient Near East. The inheritance went typically to the oldest son. So he attempts to rescue Joseph. But his rescue plan is undermined when his brothers tell Joseph, sell Joseph to a passing traders. He returns to take Joseph, Reuben does, out of the pit, but Joseph is not there. And we learn in verse 25 how callous the brothers are. Look at this. They throw him in a pit, then they get him up, they, they, they got him in a pit, and they sit down to eat. Let's kill Joseph. Hey, you know, it's noon, let's eat lunch. Then we'll kill Joseph after lunch. How callous. I mean, this very matter-of-fact detail. I was talking about details uh, in Isaiah this morning. Just these, what seem to be these, really, uh, these details that have nothing to do with the story, but they're really, really important. So they just sit down to eat. They don't care. They want to kill him. So they sit, sat down to eat. Nothing ordinary, out of the ordinary is happening here. 
And while they're dining, along comes a band of Ishmaelites, these traders, these businessmen. They're heading south toward Egypt with all these wares. And so they said, let's make a profit off of Joseph. Why are we going to kill him? We could get money. We could sell him to them as a slave. And they do. And they take Joseph down to Egypt. And you see what's happening here. Through all this sin, God is getting Joseph to Egypt. Right? Of course, you're going to, if you don't know, you're going to learn the significance of Egypt to the people of God soon enough. So why kill this silly dreamer when you can make a profit off him? And so they sell him, they slaughter a goat and dip Joseph's coat in it, and they bring the torn, bloody robe to their father. And look how callous, verse 32, look, at, look what they say to him. They say, this we have found, this garment... It's just like, hey, we found this garment out by the side of the road. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Not our brother's robe, nor our little brother's robe, the one whom we love, but is this your son's robe? Kind of a sarcastic gesture, isn't it? Is this your son's robe? That's all he means to us? He's your son. Of course, he is the favorite son, and they know it. Of course, Jacob identifies the robe, and it terribly broken and mourns, mourns for weeks. He thought his favorite son had been devoured by a fierce animal. He puts on sackcloth and the garb of mourning in the ancient Near East. Mourns over Joseph for many days. At the end of the chapter comes a vital detail. It's this. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So he's down to Egypt, he's down into Egypt, and he's sold to Potiphar, the captain of the guard of Pharaoh, of course the king of Egypt. So he has access now, he's just one step removed from the throne of Egypt. And the brothers think, we've just paid our brother back. Potiphar was an important man in Egypt, an officer Pharaoh's royal court, apparently he had responsibilities for the imprisonment of senior members of the king's staff, as we're going to see. This detail will become vital later when Joseph is thrown into jail in the king's prison. Little things, little things, little details mean a lot. The devil's in the details, we love to say, but I would argue God's in the details. And the devil's in the details. If God wants the devil in the details, when we get to Job, we're going to see, yes, the devil is sometimes in the details. And there may be a devilish, I'm sure there's a devilish part of this too, we, although that's not revealed to us. <clears throat> so Joseph's life looks bleak. It appears that evil has won the day. He was a favorite son, but now he's been sold into slavery. What will he do? The deadly effects of jealousy and bitterness continue to play out as his brother's plot what to do with a dreamer, Joseph. Now let's say this about bitterness when we get to the end here. James Boyce defines envy, envy as ill will occasioned by another's good fortune. In other words, you don't like daddy's boy because he's daddy's boy and you want to be daddy's boy or daddy's girl, right? And so this whole narrative is driven by envy. And envy is going to pop up. Envy is going to rear its ugly head throughout this story. So I think at least the, the part of the applicational take home for us is where envy and bitterness lead. 
Proverbs 14.30 says, envy rots the bones. And you probably know this, right? We're envious of another person and we want to hurt them, but what does it do instead? Envy devours the one who's envious. It does nothing to the person you're envying, right? Your bitterness toward them destroys you, not them. I mean, it's destroying these brothers. It's not destroying Joseph. I mean, yes, they're paying him back, and paybacks are hard. But we see God accomplishing his, we're going to see God accomplishing his purpose in the paybacks. But it's destroying their souls, isn't it? And envy and bitterness, the, the twin brothers, the twins, the evil twins here, evil sins, twin sins, destroy us. Here's why envy is so profoundly evil. Envy, at the end of the day, and we're on the subject of God's sovereignty and providence here, envy is an angry resistance of God's decrees. It's the angry resistance of God's will in another person's life. You're envious because they have something you don't, or they are somebody you're not, and you're saying, I have a wonderful plan for them. I, I, I love them, I have a wonderful plan for their life, God. It's not your plan. And so you're doubting God's providence when you envy another person. Again, Calvin, if he is right, and I think he is, that the dreams of Joseph are God's revealing to him his blessed future, then this is the central issue at the, in the matter of Joseph's dreams and his brother's resentment of them. I mean, it was impertinent and maybe a little cocky that Joseph shared the, shared the details of these dreams with his brothers, right? And we read it that way. I know I certainly do. At least we tend to read it that way. But it's quite possible that their envy was essentially a resentment of what God had done. That's it. It's possible that such envy put them against God. And your envy and your bitterness ultimately puts you, brother, sister, against God. You're saying, you know, your plan for their life is objectionable and offensive to me. Because I have a better plan for them. And usually it's not good. Right? I'm going to throw them in a pit. We're going to sell them to the traders, right? We hate them so much, we're so bitter toward them that we want to pay them back. Exact vengeance on them. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote, How unfortunate that many are, not, many are not willing to take the place which God has assigned them in this world. Are you bitter over the place God has assigned you in this world? Are you looking at someone else's life and think the grass is always greener? And the other man, the other woman's life, that other father, that other child, that other worker, that other teacher, that other whatever you are, you say, they've got it good. I've got it bad. The grass is greener. How unfortunate that many are not willing to take the place which God has assigned them in this world. When a man is covetous and envious, he is saying, God, I am not satisfied. You didn't give me what I want. Such a man would dethrone God and redeal the events and possessions of life so that he would be exalted. And that's what the brothers want, right? That's what Reuben wanted. That's what Judah, the other brother, that's what they wanted. They wanted things reshuffled, redealed. Judah, Judah was the brother who wanted to sell him. Let's get him out of there and let's sell him. Let's make a profit off of him. Oh, that was their bitterness that had driven them to that. What about us? Where are we envious and where might it lead to bitterness? God is orchestrating the details of your life. Is he or isn't he? 
And that's where these stories help us so much, I think, that we, we, we know that God doesn't waste anything in our lives, even things we think are just terrible because we don't have what somebody else has, whether it's money or status or Facebook follow, whatever it is, something crass or something important, and everything in between. Little things mean a lot. And it would be easy to look at the first chapter of Joseph's story and side with the brothers. I know my heart can be drawn to that. His dreams, they are annoying and they do seem a little bit narcissistic. He thinks we're all going to worship him. Who in the world does Joseph think he is? Our hearts say, but little things mean a lot. If we take that interpretation of this story, we're missing what God has providentially arranged in the details. Because remember, in God's providence, in God's economy, things aren't often are not always, or often are not as they seem. What about the gospel? Are there parallels to the gospel story here? I think there is, and I think this, this, I believe this is the most glorious part of the entire story. Because as Joe was saying earlier, as we, Clay and I talked about this this morning, we have the privilege of shutting out the world on the Lord's Day. This is why church attendance on the Lord's Day is so important. We come here and preach good news and we receive good news. News that the world can never, ever, ever give. Ever. And it's not a hope so. It's a sure and settled hope that we have as God's people. And we get to hear it preached and taught and we sing it and pray it every single Sunday together. It's important I mean, look at the, parallel, the parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus Christ. Godly Joseph is what? Beloved by his father. Remember the voice born from heaven, Mark 1, 11, and a voice came from heaven. You are be my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Joseph is the chosen son, but so was Jesus. My beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You can almost hear Jacob saying that, can't you? But you hear our Father, God, who adopted us into his kingdom through this Son, you can hear him saying that, can't you? The voice born from above. He was sent to his brothers. And what did his brothers do? They rejected him roundly. Jesus was sent to who? Sent to the house of Israel, to his brothers, and they rejected him. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver, Matthew 26, 14 and 15. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him, what? 30 pieces of silver for his brother to betray him. There are no accidental details in God's word. Not at all. And we will see Joseph suffer persecution just like our Lord Jesus. He will be tempted and kept, kept from caving into temptation. Joseph will, just like the Lord Jesus Christ, tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. We're going to see Joseph tempted in ways that maybe we're tempted and yet without sin. Is God sovereignly in his good providence orchestrating the details to give us here in Genesis? The first book of the Bible, right off the bat, the first book of the Bible, a clear, what I'm going to call a backward echo of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I don't think there's any question. And it's glorious. It's glorious, and I hope you see it. In the lives of God's people, little things mean a lot. And in your life, every little things mean a lot. Let us ask God to give us the eyes to see them and not miss them. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for Joseph. We thank you for the glorious picture it paints of the one who's going to come and be betrayed by his brothers and go to the cross for us and rescue us from our sins. Oh Lord, if there be one here today who does not know you, today I pray will be the day of grace in their lives. That your grace, your sovereign mercy would break through into their hearts. And where there is now darkness, you will speak light and draw them to yourself. And they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ our Lord.